Look, I don't yell, okay? I just get real excited. It's a difference. You know, it's like when you fight with your wife, you know, it's like you're just passionate. You're not yelling. Good morning. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. Glad you're here. Uh, If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, We are uh, going through a series on community. Life together is what we're calling it. And uh, am I feeding back a little bit? Everyone okay? Is everyone here? Okay. And with, um, why are we talking about this right now? Well, it's kind of obvious, right? Like with, with the isolation and the difficulty um, of the past years, uh, it is common knowledge, y'all, uh, that people are not together. <laughs> they, they feel alone right now. People feel alone right now with all the things that have happened over the past couple of years. It's actually common knowledge that uh, depression and suicide rates have uh, skyrocketed in our country over the past uh, several years. Uh, To quote a scientific journal, they said the combination of physical distancing, um, economic stress, barriers to mental health treatment, pervasive national anxiety, and a spike in gun sales are creating what JAMA Psychiatry referred to as a perfect storm for uh, suicide mortality rates. Uh, It's been brutal. (laughs) It has. Anyone wish this? It's been brutal? past couple years, right? And it's clear, it's clear uh, that social isolation has played a key role in the brutality that people have had to endure over the past couple years. People feel alone. People feel uh, politically alienated. People feel socially alienated. They even feel religiously alienated right now for all sorts of reasons, some inside us and some outside of our control. People feel alone. People seem to have the mentality right now in our day and age that the world is against me and I am against the world and I can't trust anyone except myself. Huh? We chatting? Okay. All right. So we also know that uh, the church has lost one third of its weekly attenders. The church is one third smaller now than it was pre-COVID. That's a national statistics, right? We've come uh, to a crisis of loneliness in our culture, in our society. People are alone right now, right? Amongst all the other things, inciting our anxiety in the headlines. Pile on top of that, I feel alone. I feel isolated. So it just seems like a good time to remind ourselves, like, what's the point, man? What's the point of being committed to a community? What's the point? (laughs) What's the point of spiritual friendships? Is it worth fighting for? Like, really? Is it worth fighting for? Why be apart? And because we intend to follow Jesus in this room, most of us, our conversation just hasn't been just about the sociological phenomenon of, of, of community. It's been what is distinctly Christian community. What is the church supposed to be about? What, are, what binds Christians together? You could put it this way. Why do Christians always insist throughout time and space and centuries and culture and ethnicities? Why do Christians always insist on getting together? So we've been exploring this from multiple, multiple perspectives. Last week, we talked about um, the safety and the uniqueness of gospel-centered community. In that, only, so if you weren't with us, only when the gospel, only when the kingdom of God is in our midst, can we be both fully known and fully loved 
at the same time. That's what we said last week. Most of us feel those two things are mutually exclusive. And this is what I mean by that. As we talked about last week, we feel if we are fully known, we cannot be fully loved because then you're going to know the dirt. You can't love me, right? Or we feel if I am fully loved, it's because you don't fully know me. If you knew me, you wouldn't love me. And outside the gospel, we're going to separate these things, fully known and fully loved. And we said only, in the, only when the gospel bears its weight on our hearts can in community and in relationships you be fully known and fully loved. It can't happen outside of the never-ending, always forever love of Jesus resting on our hearts, leading us to love others. For most people, those two things are uh, separate. And it's true. It's true. People, listen, it's true. People will not love you. If they fully know you, they won't. You know the things you've done. Like there are things that me and you have done in the dark soul of the night that people would be disgusted by if they knew. Unless the gospel has its way in their hearts. Unless the gospel has its way in our community, right? In natural community, y'all. Community, your friendships that are outside of Christ, most likely, right, natural community, others are going to use, they're going to look at flaws, they're going to look at imperfections, and they will use those things to look down their nose at you and feel superior over you, right? In Christian community, when the gospel takes root, the gospel is going to obliterate any moral high ground you thought you had. When it says, y'all, all have fallen short, dude with the mic included, huh? Every single one of us has missed the mark. And Jesus loves us anyway. He dies for us yet sinners. That's the gospel. And because he loves you, despite your sin, now you can, if you should press into that, love others despite their sin. But it's not going to happen outside of Christian community. It's not going to happen outside the gospel. It's only when Jesus is in our midst, all right? Only when the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning can our deepest longings be fulfilled to be fully known and fully loved in community. Y'all, listen, that's, this is what we said last week. Did someone just slam the kick drum behind me? That's breathing, <laughs> that's breathing the free air of the children of God, fully known, fully loved. That is being fully alive until you have no secrets. That's what we said last week. I'm just kind of revamping from last week, priming the pump. Here we go. Until you have no secrets, you are not fully alive. You're not fully alive. You're still in the dark. You're still in the dark. Huh? And in the dark, guess what? Sin wins. In the dark, sin wins. In the dark, sin still has power over you. Why be a part of Christian community? Because gospel-centered relationships are God's primary way, primary mechanism for dragging our demons that we all have, that we all don't want to acknowledge, dragging our demons kicking and streaming into the light. Why be a part of Christian community? Because it is God's mechanism for dragging your demons into the light. As that demon kicks and screams and wails like a, like a freaking vampire in the sunlight. Right? It's the most unintuitive thing ever, y'all. Especially among plastic, cultural, I'm fine, you're fine, everyone's fine Christianity. Right? See, outside the gospel, we hide. Outside the gospel, we hide our demons. We domesticate our demons. We tell them, if you, if you behave, if you stay on your leash, don't make a hubbub, don't let any, you'll be fine. Everyone will be fine. We hide our sin, y'all. We push it under the rug. We push it behind the carpet. Uh, what? We got that backwards. And we pretend, right? 
And it's like religious self-preservation. And it's all over our cultural American Christianity. I'm a small group leader. I can't struggle, all right? I'm lead worship. I preach. I can't be honest about my struggles or it's over, right? I volunteer. I can't come clean. So we hide, all right? I'm sorry. I am yelling already. (laughs) So we hide. Our wounds, and when we hide, guess what? Guess what? When you hide, your wounds fester. When you hide, your sin enslaves you, and, we, and you become a shell of a person because you're hiding. You become an empty shadow of who God's called you to be, but the gospel frees us. Guess why? Because it lets the cat out of the bag, man. Because the cat out of, like, it's not a secret anymore. We're messed up. We're all messed up. It's not a secret anymore. You can come clean. That's what the gospel does for you. It lets you come out of the darkness. It lets you say, man, I am screwed up. I have all sorts of things wrong with me. Help me, Jesus. That's the gospel. Okay. And the invitation is to acknowledge, hey, I'm in a mess. Just acknowledge it. Like things are messed up in my life, right? And it, and it shows, it lets God engage you in those places and the pressures off. The invitation is to acknowledge the mess. The Bible calls it confession, and God promises that he will deal with it when it's brought into the life, but it can't stay in the dark. And guess what? You need others to extend the mercy of Jesus to you in those moments of weakness. You need others to drag your demon into the light before. So last week, we just talked about, y'all, this is what emboldens us as Christians to not hide our sin, but rather, last week, we talked about taking an aggressive stance towards our own sin, right? It's either, and we didn't say this last week, but it's you are either killing your sin or it is killing you, right? And we talked about how we can and should how this should work in Christian community, speaking the truth in love. That was last week, right? So we just talked about the positions we get to take towards sin and temptations in our life and community, or as one pastor put it, the safety of the kingdom of God in community. Listen to me. Listen to the words come out of my mouth. Listen to the words. The safety of the kingdom of God within community means that when some demon, when some dark temptress gets in front of your face and tempts you to lust or to gossip, or to hate, or to be prideful, or contemptuous of someone else, right? When some tempter gets in front of your face, you get to, as a, as a child of the king, what you get to do is jam your throat down that demon's uh, mouth, and pull out its guts, and call your brother and say, look at the trash that was trying to tempt me. That's the freedom we get in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Hmm? You take an aggressive position towards the sin, the cancerous sin that's trying to take you down and out. Man, beautiful. Only the gospel can do that. Look at the trash that was trying to tempt me, right? You drag it into the light as it wails and screams, right? Like we said last week, that's the freedom that you get to be a part of in the people of God, when you're a part of the people of God. In isolation, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it outside of gospel-centered relationships, man. So we just talked about that, right? This week, we return to looking at language in the New Testament um, that the authors of the New Testament used to describe the church, primarily the metaphors. 
So if you read the New Testament, you will begin to recognize this, these different metaphors that go through the entirety of the New Testament that come to represent what the church is, what community together as Christians are. And so it gives us all these pictures to help us understand, hey, this is how you guys should re, uh, interact with the, in one another in the world. This is what it looks like. And the one that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the metaphor we sat with a couple weeks ago was a body. If you've read the New Testament, you've probably come along places where it calls the church a body. And we dug into that, right? That's the most common metaphor in the New Testament for the church. Today, we sit with a slightly less pervasive metaphor, um, but it's in the New Testament nonetheless, which likens the people of God to a building, okay? To a building. And the exact metaphor is not used as often as a body, but the idea behind the metaphor just as prevalent in the New Testament, just as saturating. What is the idea behind the metaphor? What's the, what is it trying to communicate when it calls the people of God a building? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to talk about. So 1 Peter 2 is going to talk about each of us as living stones, living stones being built into a spiritual house. 1 Corinthians is going to call your body a temple, it's going to call your body a temple, which is language actually straight from Jesus. Uh, Jesus used that language. That's where they got this, right? John 2, 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you give us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, they looked at this massive temple in front of them. They said, dude, it's taken 46 years to build that temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And then the narrator turns to you and whispers, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? And it says that when he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this and they believed. But I think Ephesians 2, so there's a couple brief snapshots of this analogy in the New Testament. I think Ephesians 2 is going to help us get at the idea behind the metaphor a bit more clearly. Living stones to what end? What's it mean to call a person a temple? What does that mean? Call a person a temple. What do temples do? What are they for? Well, let's read. Okay, so Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 12, should be on the screen. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, who is talking about both? He's talking about Gentiles and, and Jews, a cultural racial divide, right? He has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the dividing wall of hostility between me and you and me and God, right? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. One new man. This is that's another body uh, metaphor, right? That, that we've become one person. So making peace, 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, 19. So when we are, when, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built, here we go. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built, being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's writing, Paul is writing, y'all, to a Gentile church in um, Ephesus, in the Roman city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, actually, uh, you're going you're gonna to see Paul in the city of Ephesus. And if you, <laughs> I mean, it's a great time. You should go read it. It's crazy. But what it, it tells you a lot about this city in Acts 19, right? Uh, and it, what it's going to tell you, we're not going to get, we're going to go there. You can go read it later. It's really cool. Uh, the, what it says it's going to tell you is Ephesus was extremely religious. Um, in Ephesus, they had one of the ancient, wonders of the world, which was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a kind of uh, 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 divine female uh, god of fertility, okay? And they had this amazing temple that was one of the seven, uh, it was a seven, right? Seven ancient wonders of the world. So when Paul or Jesus says, you guys together are now a temple, see, Ephes, the Romans and the, the Gentiles in Ephesus, they had a grid for that, we, we don't really have um, the same cultural dictionary that they had and understood what temples were for. Temples, y'all, for them are, were where heaven and earth met. Temples were where heaven and earth met, right? They were where the gods lived. They were temples were a convergent space where earthly realms and divine realms came together. That's what, what, that's what temples were. So the Celtics called these places thin places. Thin places where it seemed like the two realms, the distance between heaven and earth became thin. Now for the Celts, it was uh, maybe a landscape or some holy site or something like that. For the ancients, it was temples. That's where heaven and earth came close together. For us, we don't really have that, do we? In our modern uh, dictionary of, of our thinking, right, how we think, we really don't have a place where heaven and earth meet in our society. It may be a church. If you grew up in the South, maybe it's a church. I don't know. Maybe it's like, maybe we think where heaven and earth meets, like out in nature, right? If you're kind of new age, maybe, maybe you think that. But for most of us, we, there's kind of a vacuum <laughs> in our imaginations of where heaven and earth are supposed to meet. Where, where are we supposed to access divine things, right? Um, but even back then... They knew they couldn't just approach divinity willy-nilly. They had to have mediators. So even the temple of Artemis had priests, right? They had people who were middlemen, spiritual middlemen, who interceded for you, right? They did the ceremony just right. They did the right sacrifice, the right animals, right? Performed the right rituals that gave you access to the divine. So if you were pregnant, for example, and you lived in Ephesus, and you wanted the protection of your baby during birth, well, you could go to the temple of Artemis, pre presumably hire a priest to perform the right act on your behalf, and there you go. Artemis is going to bless your birth. She was the god of, of, of fertility, right? So even for the Jews, y'all, God lived at the temple. That's where he lived. Read the Old Testament. It was the Holy of Holies behind the curtain, right? Only the priest could go in. You couldn't go in, right? Uh, the priest would sacrifice for you because you don't play with God's holiness. In fact, where God lived was so insane, right? So holy, so otherworldly that when the priest went behind the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, they tied a bell around their neck and a rope around their ankle. So if the holiness of God struck them dead and the bell stopped ringing, they could drag the carcass of the priest. It broke sin, had sin in his life. So man, God didn't, you know, no? I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, not, you know, we've kind of, <laughs> we don't have that same imagination in our head when we think of God, right? We kind of had buddy Jesus a little bit when we think of God. But for the Jews, they had an entire sacrificial system that revolved around the temple and claimed to deal with your sin so that you could have access to God. This is the framework. So when Jesus's uh, followers and when Jesus himself comes along, they begin to understand Jesus as the ultimate high priest, 
who deals with our sins definitively. Read Hebrews, right? But this wouldn't, where would that happen? In the New Testament, for a Christian, where does that action happen now? Now, this is what the analogy is getting at. This is what we're kind of getting after. Do you, do you have to go to a church? Do you have to go to a holy site for this type of interaction to happen, for your sin to be dealt with, for, for, for you to access divinity? Where is this going to go down, right? See, for the Christians, and in the New Testament, this wouldn't happen in temples. Remember, if you've read your Bible, you're going to know the early church had no temples. They didn't even have church buildings. You know where they met? They met in people's houses. It was, a, it, was a, it was a house church movement, right? So this temple building imagery is something now that doesn't happen at a building, but rather in the interior of your life. This is what the image is getting at. This is the metaphor. It's an internal reality that's not facilitated by a physical structure anymore. It's not facilitated by a mediator anymore. We don't need a guy to explain it to us anymore. We don't have to go to the wise sage in the mountains to access divinity anymore. See, Christians are obliterating this kind of hierarchy that, that we've... <laughs> first, uh, what, can you, what can you say? What can you, you can say that the, the first century Christian New Testament is obliterating the hierarchy that then generations and generations of Christians after it have built back up, <laughs> right? How else can you say it? Because we've just built the whole thing up again. We've just built a whole religion of mediators up again to where we have to go to this guy who's going to get us this thing and he's going to do the right ritual and we've got to have the things right. And if you don't do the things, then you're not going to be in, right? And we've recreated a hierarchy that the New Testament writers are saying, dude, it's gone. It's gone. You are the temple. You, you, not, not this place, your body. What's that mean, right? It's massive. This is the claim of the New Testament. And the implications are vast as they are deep. What does it mean that we, and there's no way we can fully explore this in, on a Sunday morning, right? right? But like, I mean, what does this idea do to the uh, idea of the priesthood? Well, it does a lot to it. What does this idea do to how you view your body? What does this idea do to how you view your own sin? This is massive. There's all sorts of implications, right? So, well, all we're going to do is we're going to look at some personal implications and some corporate implications, okay? And we can't, I mean, there's just, there's limitless what you can do with this, all right, in the New Testament. So, so first, personal. What are the, what's personally for you the implications of this idea that the New Testament writers are trying to get across to you? You are the temple. Your body, you are the temple, okay? Well, personally, it means this. Your life was meant to be filled, your life was meant to be filled. Or you could, you, could, you, could, you, know, you could say this. God created you to be full, not empty. This is architectural language. This is shell language. It's, it's creating a cavity. Buildings house things. Buildings aren't for their own sake. Don't just build a building for a building to look at it, right? Some maybe smoozy architectural guy, right? The whole point is that it looks good. Right? No, most buildings are because they house something. They have a function, so what's it saying about the function of your body? You were meant to be filled. There's something that's supposed to be inside you, filling you up. Jesus called it living water. There's something that's supposed to be bubbling out of you. You're not supposed to be a shell of a person. There's supposed to be some substance, some depth. And there is substance and depth to you. What is it though? Like what is your heart, what do you fill yourself up with? What are the things that your heart is naturally drawn to when you are not obligated by family or due to your work? What do you fill yourself with? Because you were made to be filled. And if, and if you are not filling it with certain things, other things, that you, you know, whatever, the loudest voice is going to, 24-hour news cycle, baby. <laughs> Did I get you? <laughs> Something's going to fill you. 
Something's going to fill you, guys. You were made to have your mind and heart occupied by something. You were. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's going to call your body a jar. A jar of clay. Anyone? 90s? Okay. A, ve- <laughs> a vessel. He's going to call your body a vessel. Matthew 17. Jesus would tell a story that compares the interior of, of your life to a house. Matthew, did I say 17? I meant 7. Matthew 7, Jesus is going to tell a story that compares the interior of your life to a house, a room. He says, that house, that room, which once cleared of evil, because the owner didn't fill that house with something else, seven more evil spirits, worse than the first one, come back and inhabit the house. And the state of that house is worse off afterward because the owner left it vacant, vacant. You were meant to be filled. This is, this is essentially the uh, existential crisis of meaning and purpose in your life. What will my life be about? When all the dust settles, when your heart goes to what it truly wants, what do you fill yourself up with, right? You, because you are made to be filled and you will fill it with something. Uh, because we are not taking an active role often in what is filling us, guess what happens, right? We're left to the loudest voices. You're left to be driven by your own appetites and instincts like an animal, And you allow all those things, lesser gods, lesser delights, lesser, sometimes darker spiritual things to move in and take up residence in you. And then guess what? They begin calling the shots. Whatever you're filling yourself with is influencing you and calling the shots in your life in some way, right? They start redecorating the interior of your life to their likings. And they put the couch over here and they put the TV here and they knock out a wall here so their buddies can come over and take up residence too because the interior of your life, it has to be used for something. And what is it being used for? right? We're letting so often the cultural forces, the the turbulent currents at work in our society and media begin to call the shots, not only in the outside of our life, but in the interior of our life, y'all. You know what it looks like? It's anxiety. This crippling anxiety moves in and begins to order the internal reality of your life to its likings. Are we chatting? Is this real? Are we talking about this right now? Yes, of course. This, it moves to the interior of your life and it begins redecorating, makes room for itself and it begins calling the shots. And then on the outside, y'all, the outside, the house looks the same. The outside, you may be great. I mean, you still, go to, you still volunteer. Everything looks great. But on the inside, there's disorder and there's chaos and anger because you were made to be filled and you twiddled your thumbs and let the currents of your own sinful desires have their way in you and begin calling the shots and redecorating the interior of your life. Individually, there's, there's so much more to this temple of this imagery of temple, right? Temples have a purpose, right? It's not just an analogy to help us realize that you have an interior life. It's not just helping us realize that we are in some ways vacuous uh, structures that need to be filled with something. That's, that's helpful. But what it tells us is that that interior space is for something. And what is it for? Well, according to Ephesians 2, it's for a place for God himself to dwell. The living God, the creator God, right? That would strike down sin in their priest as they walked into the, that him himself is, is wants to dwell inside the interior of your life. This is remarkable. 
See, what becomes clear in the biblical story is that the temple and the priesthood could never fully achieve what God really wanted in any lasting way. In fact, what you see is the whole structure uh, was a concession from God to to the Israelites, right? What he wanted was intimacy with his people, and the priesthood and the temple could never accomplish that in full, partly, but not in full, right? Acts 7, 48 says this, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where, what kind of house will you build for me? I sit on top of heaven and I prop my feet up on the earth. <laughs> what kind of house are you going to build for him? Right? Second Corinthians 3.16, do you not know? And then, he, and then the Bible's going to answer us. You know what kind of house? You. <laughs> That's where he wants to live. Do you know, First uh, Corinthians 3.16, do you, do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. See, now, this is the last little thing I'm gonna say on this bit, and I just wanna... At Pentecost, just get this idea across, God dropped a bomb. Not, not just like Holy Spirit bomb, although most of you could use that. Like, he dropped a bomb uh, on the, our understanding of something. And this is, it was a shift in the understanding of where God lived. And this is, bear with me, here it is. Can you think of any place in the Old Testament where God's living, active presence was symbolized by fire. Anytime in the Old Testament. Let me help you. Gen- oh, <laughs> we're going to raise hands. Awesome. We're raising hands now, guys. So, yeah. Um, yes, that's right. Exactly. Genesis 15. It goes even before that. Genesis 15. God's make a co- God makes a covenant with Abraham and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the sacrifice. Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. Exodus 13, God leads his people by a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of by night. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai is engulfed in smoke because the Lord, quote, the Lord descended on it in fire. Exodus 24, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Leviticus 6, 9, uh, when God is giving instructions to the priest at the temple, he says over and over, the fire shall not go out. There's a candle, right? There's a fire burning. Keep the fire burning because it represented the presence of the Lord amongst his people. 1 Kings 18, the fire of God slams down from the sky and consumes sacrifices on the altar on the standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And on and on and on we could go. Fire in the imagination of the people of God always represented the living, active, powerful, purifying presence and action of God in the earth. That was fire. That was what they thought of when they thought of fire. It wasn't just a fire. It represented something. It was deep in their imagination because it had, they had, their lives were, were formed by uh, the fabric of their life, formed by the Torah, by the Old Testament, right? So there was fire at the temple because that's where God lives. Well, at Pentecost, what comes and hovers and rests over everyone's head in the upper room? Fire. Acts 2.3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now notice it says as of, it wasn't fire. It, it was, it's like fire. As of fire, something like fire came over and rested on each of their heads. But what is God trying to tell us? He's trying to communicate something to us. All these thousands and thousands of years later, you are to be the thin place. You, with all your hangups with all your sins and distractions, with all your imperfections. You are to be where heaven and earth meet. This is massive, y'all. The interior of your life 
is to carry around the very presence and power of the living God to those around you. You. The building we are in, y'all, wasn't created to be a convergent space where heaven and earth meet. You were created to be a convergent space where heaven and earth meet. What's that mean? Well, at the very least, it confronts your impoverished view of your sin-soaked self if you're a Christian. At the very least, God is saying, I'm trying to make you into a massive castle that holds the very life of God. I'm trying to make you into a mansion fit for a king like that. That's the kind of plans God has for the interior of your life. And you're settling for that. Where's the other one? That one, right? A shack. How do you view your soul? How do you view the interior of your life? Is it impoverished? Is it the, well, there's a roof leak and the shutter's falling off and we're making do and we're surviving, right? Like God wants to make you into a dwelling place that he is fit for a king. And most of us are like, nah, not me. I'm broken. Couldn't, God would never move into me. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. He's trying to use those around you. He's trying to use this moment right now to convince you to quit defending your little dilapidated shack and let the wrecking ball of the Holy Spirit start redecorating the place. Amen. It's got to come down. The shack's got to come down, right? The walls have to be removed. Foundations have to be ripped up. Your sin cannot stay. Your pride has to go. There's not enough room for it in God, right? You are more than a child of a king. You are where he wants to live. You are to be the, in very, you are to be the very habitation of the king. God longs, y'all, to dwell inside of you, not just visit you on holidays. <laughs> and when life gets hard, right? God just doesn't want to visit you. He wants to reside in you. And according to the New Testament, Every single one of you, if you call yourself a Christian, is exactly where God wants to dwell. He is, intends to use you. He intends to use you to establish his presence in the earth. Every single one of you, if you are a Christian, is an outpost for the kingdom in enemy-occupied territory. Now, I heard one pastor say when he was growing up, uh, your body is a temple, uh, basically meant don't smoke, don't drink, don't sleep around, and don't get a tattoo, right? Like, what a horrible exchange, <laughs> right? Like, instead of you are a convergent space where heaven and earth meet, where the holiness of God burns like a blazing fire, chases away the darkness, right? Instead of that, no, just don't get tattoos. That's what that means, right? Your body's a temple. Like, how uncompelling is that, right? There's at least, that's just one aspects of the personal implications of what this idea of temple means for us uh, as Christians. Now, what about corporately? What does the temple building analogy mean for us as a group, which is where we're really talking about? And it's pretty easy. A brick by itself on the floor is not going to do much good for the purpose it was intended. A brick by itself on the floor, a living stone, be it living as it may be, on the floor is not going to do much good. It was meant to work together with other bricks, interlocking together to make something one individual brick could never hope to accomplish on its own. Isn't this the uh, picture that there's trying to communicate? That community, that co Christian companionship is an absolute necessity? Isn't that what it's getting at? It's a community of people who have willingly entered. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm not just shooting off the, I know it sounds like I'm just kind of making stuff up. <laughs> Listen to what I'm saying, right? It's, it is a community of people who have willingly entered into interdependent structures where one supports and upholds another. Like, isn't, is, 
isn't that what we're trying to do here? <laughs> I mean, is that I'm trying to support you. You're trying to support me. I mean, what's it mean? I mean, it means that we don't get to look down our noses at the other bricks because they're underneath us. Because guess what? If that brick bails, you come tumbling down, right? Like 1 Peter 2 calls us living stones. It means we're building materials, y'all. We're building materials. Congrats, you've been upgraded to a brick. Reminds me of a song. She's a brick, right? Okay, but, but, but that, that's, move on, move on. Notice the language. That was, didn't need that. That didn't help at all. Notice the language of being built. That's the language, right? What's that mean? Well, have you ever done a remodel project in your house? <laughs> if you're like me, you started it before the pandemic and it's still not done, right? Right now, half of my basement looks awesome and the other half I can see into my crawl space because building takes time, right? Some of us need patience with the process. Hmm? Imagine all the friction and force applied brick to brick in construction um, projects. It says we're being built. Construction, some of us are in construction. You know, this, this construction is not a peaceful, quiet process. It's loud. It's messy, right? You slap one brick on another, slap some water down on another brick, brick pressing on brick. There's friction, man. <laughs> you in any relationship, you know, there's going to be friction. There's force, right? But it achieves something, doesn't it? And what the Bible's trying to tell us is it's worth the work. It's trying to tell you something, man. Of course there's going to be friction, don't quit, like, slap off the romanticized rose-colored glass. There's going to be friction, y'all. You get, you know, two people in a room, the presence of Jesus. Two people in a room, you got two opinions, man, right? Two people in a room, you got two different ways of doing things. There's going to be friction in community. It's okay. Can we hear that? Can we just, can we just sit for a second and just, just, it is okay if we don't agree. Breathe. It's okay if we butt heads sometimes. It's worth it. It's worth it to work through it. Look, all of y'all know someone, know some kind of person who bails on relationships as soon as conflict happens. They live alone. They're isolated. Because as soon as someone confronts them about an imperfection in their character, they bail. I'm trying to tell you, it is worth it. It's worth it to walk through that. Because then guess what? You get these relationships, 10, 15, 20 years strong of being so deeply known and so deeply loved. It is worth it to endure the friction. Quit having this rose-colored glasses of a Christian community, y'all. We're just as messed up as anyone else, and there will be friction. Now, the gospel is going to come in. It's going to allow us to have. In fact, that whole thing of Ephesians 2, that whole wall of hostility, who is that between? Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about hostility between people. And he's saying Jesus deals with that. Jesus helps with that conflict by making you a humble, compassionate person, right? It's a process. And some of us need patience with the friction of the bricks we're pressed against right now. We need patience with that process. Don't, I don't see any elbows, all right? No elbows going. Because all of us are God's building material, and he will do with us what he what he wants. There's no arrogance, right? There's only, in fact, from our scripture we read today, there's only one brick with more importance, and that was called the cornerstone. Did you guys catch that? There's only, see, there's only one brick that has authority and orders and uh, has superiority over all the rest of the bricks, and he was called the cornerstone. His name is Jesus. So what's that mean? Well, I'm not an engineer, so thanks, Google. Cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones will be set in reference to the stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. What's that getting at? 
Well, it's getting at the supremacy and the authority of Jesus in the church as the ordering and binding force. He is the cornerstone, right? What does it mean to be part of the church? Well, it is the process of reorienting our lives in interdependent fashion whose positions are determined and set in reference to the glory and leadership of Jesus. Reorienting our lives in interdependent fashions, right? Whose position in reference is set in reference to uh, the glory and leadership of Jesus. He defines it. He determines it. He determines the structure. It's all in reference to him. This is why we've been saying like a broken record, he is the flag we fly. He is the hill we die on. And in this analogy, he is the very foundation which holds the whole thing together. The whole thing crumbles into a mess. If, if Jesus himself is not alive and active in it, he's the cornerstone. Complete supremacy, complete authority. He is the, I want you to listen to the words I'm trying to say to you, the ordering and binding force. He is the ordering and binding force in the church. And when he ceases to be that... The church devolves into social club, nonprofit, or God help us, a political lobby group. Amen. Okay? Number three. Well, I didn't even give you numbers in the first place, so just ignore the fact I said that. Perhaps the most important element uh, in this whole, anal whole analogy is to what end? Built for what purpose? Why endure the process? Why be built together? And it's the same individually as it is corporately for us. As we surrender to the work of God in our lives, together we become a dwelling place for God. That's it. Us, when we gather, we are being built into a more expansive, more effective, more accurate temple for the Lord, a dwelling place for him to inhabit. Us together is where God wants to live. Not this building, me and you, right? As our little lights come together, the fire burns more brightly. As we support one another, as we encourage one another, God's spirit dwells in us together. Right? That's what it's getting at, right? All right? Now listen, I'm here at this building a, a fair amount during the week, right? I, I work here sometimes, right? And let me tell you something. This room is drastically different, empty, than when you guys are in here praising God. It is, I mean, I'm not just, it's not just like, it's like this, this tangible difference when we gather together and sing the praises of Jesus together. Like something happens. Like, is God here during the week? Absolutely. But when we gather and sing, his presence becomes like, manifest. Like we become more aware that he is in our midst, that he is with us. In fact, Jesus talked about that. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, right? When we are together, when we are encouraging one another with the very words of God, with the very love of God, with the very forgiveness of God, right? As we serve and love each other, when we do it serving the Lord, the Lord mysteriously meets us in the other person. He dwells in our midst, y'all. We aren't the point. We are creating space for God. We don't rescue, right? We don't have the power, but we are creating space for the one who does have the power to dwell in us. Or as we read, we grow into a holy temple in the Lord, and in him we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. This is my last thought, okay? Throughout history, uh, houses are almost always for more than just shelter, right? Right? I mean, they do that, right? But if that's all they do, why some, some sucker spend $5 million on a house and another guy spend one fifty k, right? All right? It's more than just shelter, isn't it, right? No, houses are built to say something about the inhabitant, aren't they? Castles, mansions are being built to communicate the person who lives there really important, right? It's significant, right? That person right there. It's why even today, 
Today, you can walk into just totally awe-inspiring cathedrals that Christians have built because they were trying to say, someone really important lives here. However, thinking that a building could communicate that kind of glory that God had in mind, they totally missed the point, didn't they? Because the whole idea here is that God doesn't dwell in temples and buildings. Heaven is their own, earth is his footstool, right? The Bible is saying you guys, in your friendships, in your love for each other, in your compassion and loyalty, that's where I dwell. You, look at me, you're missing it, and it's in front of your face. Like the people around you. God's saying, I'm in there. That's where I'm at. In that relationship, in that compassion, in that conversation. That's where God longs to dwell. Not in a temple, right? Oh man, it gets me all worked up. When Jesus orders our community, our lives together show off his glory to the earth. You get it? If a house is not just a dwelling place, but rather it's meant to say something about the person who dwells therein, the way we talk to one another. The way we deal with sin, the way we deal with issues in the community is to speak to the glory of our creator. The way we love each other, the way we forgive each other, the way we don't hold on to bitterness in our community. What's it doing to the world? It's showing the glory of the father. The way we have compassion and honor, the way we meet each other's needs. What's it doing? It's showing off the glory of Jesus. That's it. You guys get it? That's how we're supposed to function together. All of the kindness and goodness that we experience and, ex and extend to others has a purpose. It's to show to the world that he's glorious, that he's wonderful, that he's beautiful. And there's no way this building's going to do that. I mean, what a, right? <laughs> but the way we interact with each other will. And it, in fact, it was uh, intended to do that. It's in that messy unpredictable arena of real relationship that God intends to show his glory to the earth. So I don't know where you're at today, okay? I don't know. Uh, some of you may be smack in the middle of massive internal renovations. God may be trying to rearrange the internal order of your life, and he's knocking down walls. Let me tell you something, man. Demolition's never fun, all right? Demolition of your pride, never fun, right? You may be standing right now, you may be standing amidst what seems like a field, a hill of ruin, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Like just like walls been knocked down. It feels like the whole temple, it feels like it's gone. It's just knocked down. You feel knocked down, right? You may be there, right? What would it look like if you invited the Holy Spirit to bulldoze that rubble and lay a new foundation in the interior of your life, Right? And there's, and there's many things, I think, that are stopping us um, from real God-glorifying relationship. But here's two. Here's two that I'm just going to lay before you and ask you to assess in your own life. Anxiety and pride. I can only imagine how many of us are reeling still, still in our lives from the overwhelming, crippling anxiety that is rampant in our society today. There are, look at me, there are things to fear. Okay? I'm not saying there's no. There are things to fear. There is real danger. There is real sickness. There is real death. And all of us have felt this in some degree or another, some more than others, all right? But can I just plead with you? Don't let anxiety rule your life. Don't let it move in and start redecorating and rearranging the room to make room for itself, huh? Don't let anxiety start calling the shots, keep you isolated. You know what an apex predator does to get its prey? You know the first objective of apex predators to get its prey, a lion, isolate. First thing it does, get him outside the safety of the group. 
Listen, I, I think we should be respectful. I think we should be loving. We should be considerate. But refuse to let your life be run by fear. Hmm? Refuse to live in isolation. And the other obstacle we're, we're going to have, we're going to hit up against when we, when we try to actually press the gas on this in real ways is your own pride. Right? This is what's going to stop you out of this kind of relationship. If you think you can do this alone, I can only pray that you are beginning to see what you are missing out on. Right? And I just want to float this to you. Your inability to be in community, to be in open, honest relationships, could be an unwillingness to acknowledge your own need and imperfection. Because people so often end up being mirrors to us. And for some of us, we are unwilling to endure long, uh, honest, open relationships because we cannot bear the mirror. We can't bear the person in front of us uh, reflecting and pointing out issues in our own hearts and lives. I mean, how many people live in isolation because as soon as someone confronts them, they bail on the, on the relationship, refuse. Pride is not worth it. Pride is not worth it. And you are missing out on what it means to be fully known and fully loved. You're alone, right? Until we get some courage in these areas, we will remain alone. There are walls to be broken down. And often it's the walls in our own hearts that we've put up. God have mercy. Let's stand and pray.